0: It's not my custom when I arrive at the pulpit to suspend worship, to bring a greeting, but I'm going to do that today. I want to thank Dean Lagrone for, I love saying that, for this invitation back to my Kentucky home. And while I lament not being in Estes Chapel before the renovations, I'm grateful to gather again among colleagues and friends. Time certainly does not permit me to greet everyone personally, so I'm going to instead turn the spotlight on a former student of mine, not from Asbury, but from Fuller Seminary in Pasadena, California, to want to thank you for being here today. Some of you may know that I have returned to the Midwest this summer to care for my mother as her health declines, and truly, my worlds are colliding as among my colleagues at Wesley Seminary at Indiana Wesleyan University are many Asbury alums. So I have found my home again among the Wesleyans, and I am very grateful to spend this weekend this time with you. Thank you. Pray with me as I share a few words on this question that was asked by Elton John. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of each and every heart here be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and redeemer. Amen. Four decades ago, Elton John set these words to music. Torn from their families, mothers go hungry to feed their children, but children go hungry. There's so many big men, there out making millions when poverty profits just blame the children. If there's a God in heaven, what's he waiting for? If he can't hear the children, then he must see the war but it seems to me that he leads his lambs to the slaughterhouse and not the promised land, dying for causes they don't understand. We've been taking their futures right out of their hands. They need the handouts to hold back the tears. There's so many crying, but there's so few that hear. If there's a God in heaven, well, what's he waiting for? If there's a God in heaven what's he waiting for? In any culture, at any time, when adversity strikes, practicality demands a response to the question, if there's a God in heaven, what's he waiting for? As urban anxiety, technology, and greed reach non-urban places, an expediency calls the shots. One begins to wonder, if there's a God in heaven, what's he waiting for? In times like these, the burden of urgency can outweigh any hint of hope, and the question is not far behind. If there's a God in heaven, what's he waiting for? Dare we who gather in his name prepare a way believing that God still shows up? As time keeps slipping into the future, can we expect a word of promise to be fulfilled in our lifetime? People aren't good with delay. Last year's miracles mean little during today's crisis, and let's not call it a desire to be entertained, just a desire to have the same experience as the old folks and now stay with me here, by old folks, that's a relative term. The first time I was called an old folk, I was 21. A group of sixth graders were trying to figure out how old I was when someone shouted out, you aren't supposed to ask old people how old they are. by the same experience of the old folks, I'm thinking that every generation desires its own escape from the sea, pillar of fire, deliverance from oppression, military massacre. We want God to show up and show out in our lifetime. And from time to time, God is known to resorting to dramatic display, big fish, fiery furnaces, divine decrees for wilderness worship retreats, political unrest, forcing uh, forcing the ruling party to recognize the instability among their working class, negotiations between united forces and senior officials who fail to associate the quality and quantity of production with the health hygiene and good humor of their line workers. On star directions to detour to a desert through a dry sea canyon, a sea ripped in two, walls of water standing up and lying down, bogged down Egyptian hung vs, a lonely human hand stretched out twice, and a shore strewn with dead troops. It's enough to make Anderson Cooper, Chandra Rhymes, and YouTube enthusiasts mouthwater. No wonder the children of Israel recount their pilgrimage of pain and hope with passion and regularity. It's a verbal equivalent of a Netflix binge. The old folks talked about plagues and protest and protection, but rescue and release seem so last generation. The people need to begin reconstruction today. Hashtag Black Lives Matter. Hashtag Me Too. Hashtag Lock Her Up. It's amazing how quickly the reformers become institutionalists in the eyes of everyone else. People just aren't good with delay. So Peter's words sound eerily contemporary. Don't let it escape Notice, dear friends, that with the Lord, a single day is like a thousand years. And a thousand years is like a single day. Now, having heard Fred Long on Sunday, I'm not going to get into the mechanics of Jesus' return. Only here to say, with having read Ruth Ann Reese's commentary on Peter, that the question here is about delay. Delay. If there's a God in heaven, what's he waiting for? Because the response of the people seems to be, if Jesus is not coming back, then there's no judgment to worry about. So the ungodly behavior escalates, and it seems there are no consequences. So I can do whatever I want to do. And the people begin, everyone, to do what is right in their own eyes. It's the same old story all over again. We're not the first to be impatient with waiting. Recently liberated slaves in ancient Israel rushed to build a golden calf to worship when God and Moses were contracting a society of holiness which the ancient world had never ever seen. And then their descendants asked for a king and God graciously stepped aside to give them the human ruler they demanded. And in another generation and generations and generations expecting a Messiah, the Jews followed many who displayed military might, offering promises to make Israel great again. Not much has changed. From the promises recorded in Genesis, we learn over and over again that God speaks a faithful word in response to humanity's desire for something more than God's everything. Having received access to God's supremely good creation, humanity was talked into desiring most that one thing that God prohibits. As events unfold in the biblical narrative, the word of God over and over again is promise, both speaking into being what is not yet and a guarantee that all is very good. And we like these promises. We we, we love these promises, especially when we gather together in the strength of community as we do in chapels. We, We love these promises when we sing songs that tell us Christmas is coming And like people lulled into believing in human ingenuity, we forget that we are called out as a special community for whom the season is not about trees and presents and lights, but about the light of the world present among us as God's gift of life eternal. The season for us is expecting the presence of God, Christ's return, We're easily distracted by a culture and a tradition around us and comforted by what we think we can do to help God out. In the meantime, let's enjoy ourselves. Let's form communities of people we like. And we're not unlike the people to whom this epistle was written. The whole of the Mediterranean world were unified under the rule of Roman Empire. They had a common language, common good roads, and common laws, an ongoing absence of war. It acted as a uniforming force during that first century. And at the same time, the regions of the empire maintained their own local customs. They continued to worship their own gods alongside the growing cult of the Roman emperor. The Romans were generally tolerant of other gods and other religious practices as long as they didn't feel that this threatened the stability of the empire. I mean, look at what happened to Pharaoh's army when he allowed Moses to let Israelites have that wilderness retreat weekend. To some extent in that culture, both the Jews and the Christians during the first century benefited from tolerance. However, there were also the reality that Christians endured localized persecution from the government. And in the larger society, Christians were seldom in positions of power, and they were more likely to find themselves in oppressive situations. The people to whom this letter is written were saturated in the traditions and stories of the Hebrew Bible, the promises that God kept making and the promise that Jesus had left behind. And these letters might be described as an ancient beta version of blogs. It's as if so someone thought that they could express their not so humble opinion to their 1,254 closest friends. And someone copied it as a link, shared it on Twitter, and it's gone viral for thousands of years since. But if we accept, as this numbering suggests, that this is the second letter to the Diaspora Christ followers in the Roman provinces and to the north of the Taurus Mountains, then these first century exiles of the dispersion were expected to be familiar with the letters written by Paul to the churches in the regions of Galatia, Ephesus, and Colossa. Unless we think old folks were the only ones prone to becoming Pharisees, we need to remember this letter is addressed to the Gentiles that were evangelized by Paul, sort of a contemporary seekers of non-denominational congregations who were not raised to identify themselves as evangelicals. Shall we call them converted nuns? and I'm not to be confused with convent residents. These generations, seekers of spiritual formation were constantly at odds with those who identified with the traditional religious community. Not unlike us today. Those who seek spirituality to avoid the confines of religion. Can't we all just get along? Not in the name of religion, it seems. So rejecting the call to holiness, so-called Christian protesters want justice without Jesus. They believe that they can have good without God. They, we, believe that we can fix the very things that our rejection of God's holiness has created as a mess that we currently live in. A world where children are unwanted burdens, whose health care is not the concern of those who demand that they be born. A world where families are torn apart in the name of war or national borders and seasonal employment. A world where genocide is ignored, not to mention sexual harassment, racial discrimination, and a tax code of economic disparity. A United States where state rule is as much a desire as it was during the Civil War. An America that rejects those whose ancestry is African, Asian, Latino, or Native American. An evangelical church that believes political power is a sign of God's favor as if Herod and Ahab and Saul were not counted among the people of God. Hashtag, what did she go there for? This is like supposed to be Christmas, right? Because this letter is not is addressed to believers. It's not addressed to the Roman Empire, but to the diaspora of Christ followers in the Roman provinces. They are persecuted. They do not hold seats of power. They are the minority spread out in a multicultural, pluralistic, polytheistic society, and they are tired of waiting. So one by one, little by little, they listen to their so-called Christian leaders who are suggesting, no, teaching a freedom to indulge the pleasures of the body because there's no return of Christ and therefore there's no judgment. Such teaching mirrors the desires of ancient Israel to want to be like everybody else, creating yet again a community where everyone does what is right in their own eyes. And to this, Peter responds, the Lord isn't slow to keep his promise, as some think of slowness. But he is patient toward you, not wanting any to perish, but all to change their hearts and lives. Talk about turning the tables upside down. This delay of God's judgment is evidence of God's grace. Who would have thought? The leaders, those Peter calls false teachers, want the people to believe that God doesn't keep God's promises, What they're teaching sounds eerily contemporary. It's the denial of providence based on arguments that there was no creator involved in creation. Providence destroys free will. The worlds came into existence by chance. So there's no foreknowledge as it would require a predetermined order. And since people incur justice by the delay of these gods, any god that exists must engage in rewarding or punishing mortals. Excuse me, any God that exists must not engage in rewarding or punishing mortals. This is what Epicureans were known to believe. If there's no afterlife as a place of eternal reward and punishment, then the best course of action is self-determination. And it seems that the false teachers of 2 Peter, the so-called freedom of self-determination led directly to Self-indulgence, if only I had time to rehearse how that is exactly where we're living today. Our passions are not conveniently the persuasions of our hormones. Our passions are narcissism, exploitation, slander, oppression, disregard for the widows and the orphans. We like the judgment of order. We want to point the finger. We want God to hurry up and judge them But Peter reminds his readers and us that the God that destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, the God that didn't spare the angels, the God that sent his chosen into exile, this God will judge. But maybe not right now. So we don't have time to wait until tomorrow. Because when that now comes, it will come like a thief in a night. There will be no alert on your phone that today is the day. When that day comes, it's going to be more like a pink slip on a Friday afternoon than sitting in front of the Christmas tree in the hearth. Seeing every, since everything is going to be destroyed, we need to be a different sort of people. And the question is, while we're waiting on God to make God's next move, what kind of people will we be, not asking whether there's a God, we're the people that believe that God is, but asking because we are those people, what are we doing as we wait for God to show up and show out again? Bishop Ken Carter once said, God has made some astounding yet unfulfilled promises they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nature. Neither shall they learn war anymore. Or this one, God will wipe every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more. But that, those promises are a long time in coming. So if we can't believe in those, how can we believe that one day a trump will shout and Jesus will return? But faith is holding on to God's promises and living toward them, even when there's no evidence that they will be fulfilled. But that kind of faith is difficult and rare. I think it's time for us to be honest with folks. If people want a money back guarantee on this thing we call faith, tell them to go and buy a washing machine. Because the circumstances of this world are causing people who are looking at the church to ask the question Elton John put to music. If there's a God in heaven, what's he waiting for? Here's what Peter said God's waiting for us. God's waiting for us to be holy as God is holy. God is waiting for us to live as a people that are a glimpse of God's glory. God is waiting for us to be a demonstration of what God intends to do with all creation when Christ does return, a community of every nation, every tongue, every tribe gathered together in love and fellowship and righteousness and justice, a peculiar community such that the world takes notice and says, there is a God, and this God is good. In fact, I knew you before and that makes me say God is great because I've seen what God has done in your life, in your community, in your church, in your denomination, in your country. When will we be such a demonstration? Because what God is waiting for is for us to keep the promises we made to God. Ella Davis from Duke once pointed out how Abraham responded when God said he was going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. It's actually the same response that Moses made when God said to Moses, your people down there on the other side of the mountain. It wasn't that Abraham and Moses said, you know, I'm so glad you're going to take care of them, God. They are a thorn in my flesh. I'm just tired of their sinfulness and their their idolatry and and they're asking all of these questions. and, And yes, God, destroy them. That was not their response. Their response was to appeal to God's favor, appeal to God's grace, appeal to God's holiness, and to say, don't destroy them. What do you pray when you look at the news and the other party has the microphone? What do you pray when you're sitting at the dining room table with someone who voted the wrong way in the last election? What do you pray when you lose the election, when the conference vote doesn't go your way, when the denomination decides against you? Do you pray that God would come immediately to destroy them? Because God is patient to recover them, whoever we say they are. But God is also patient with us. God is waiting for us to do what we said we would do to be a peculiar people, not just saved by grace, but sanctified by the outpouring of God's spirit. Christianity requires more recognizable behavior than a Christ-like claim to follow Jesus. Hashtag Jesus is not a Twitter feed. We don't follow Jesus, we're like Jesus. Christ like, Christian. Among those who oppress and ignore and manipulate and lie and kill, let us do good. Let us seek justice. Let us help the oppressed. Let us defend the cause of the orphans and fight for the rights of widows. Let us set the captives free because God's delay is God's grace. In the 21st century, it's troublesome to speak about holiness. And yet, it was troublesome from Wesley. It was troublesome for Peter. It was troublesome for Jesus. It was troublesome for Moses. Well, if you look at Adam and Eve, it was troublesome for God. Yet the writer here, Captures practices of holiness that remain awe inspiring now as then, a peculiar people that are evident in relationship with God, a people who establish culture rather than follow it, expecting that we favor neither, that we give favor to neither the poor nor the wealthy, that we understand neighbor is not a geographic marker, but an indication of how one treats their co worker across town, the clerk at the grocery store, and the person in the the lane next to you in the freeway. So our business practices as well as our personal actions refrain from deceiving and racketeering and victimizing anyone. Pay those who work for you in a timely manner and be attentive to the disabled. The laws haven't changed. Don't get even. No blaming your predecessors. No profiting at the expense of others' bad fortune. Fortune. From the Supreme Court to the storefront, such practices make an ideal community, and it's not going to happen by a change of a law. It's only going to happen when the people who claim to be filled by the Holy Spirit live as if Jesus is in control of their lives. It's with this attitude that a nonviolent resistance in the 20th century was fueled, treating others justly even though they were unable to treat them justly. This is God's way of responding to us. When we're holy like God is holy, we care for others, even those we think least deserve it. We pray for our enemies. And while taking care of our community without expecting others to do it in return for us, we demonstrate that We're praying for God's delay because we love God's children as much as God does. There's a God in heaven, the creator of the universe. He's waiting. The God who rescued the enslaved Israelites in ancient Egypt and enslaved Africans in 19th century Britain and the United States and enslaved humans across the country in the 20th century, he's waiting. This God, whom Jesus reveals as Father, is waiting. The God who believes in humanity's capacity to practice righteousness is waiting. The God who makes promises is waiting, this season is a reminder for us to do what God is doing. So to borrow the phrase, there is a God in heaven. And the answer to the question is simple. He's waiting for us, or more specifically, he's waiting for you and me. We are who God is waiting for. Amen.